Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's week 31 of The Pick List. Are you having a good week so far? Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week indeed. Lots of writing. Um, We've had so much snow up here, so I've been trying to go for a walk uh, whenever possible. But most of the time, um, I've spent in my office trying to get lots of words on the page because there are several deadlines looming this week. How about you? There has been a lot of snow. I thought you were going to say I've been trying to go sledging. (laughs) Yeah, that would be amazing. But no, I'm just the same, going for a walk. Um, Yeah, good. By chair training that I did last week, I've already been putting that into action, which is great. I've um, chaired an industry meeting so far this week. So all is going well. Thank you. Um, This week on the pick list, we've got a sponsor again. We do indeed. We have Shopper Intelligence as this episode's sponsor. Shopper Intelligence is an industry database that puts the voice of shoppers back into category management with servant-driven metrics you don't get from other sources, comparing across all supermarket, fresh food and consumer goods categories. As ever, if you'd like to know more about Shopper Intelligence, just visit their website, shopperintelligence.com. So episode-wise this week, we've got another fantastic guest. Tell us who we've got this week. Yes, we're joined by Tom Richardson. Tom is Commercial Director at Warrendale Wagyu. He's also got a really extensive background in retail, including as a category director, most recently at Morrison's. So someone who knows the industry very well can bring lots of interesting perspectives on what's going on. And because he's so close to the meat industry, we, of course, picked very interesting articles all to do with meat this week as well. It's definitely a meaty one. Shall we start the show? Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do and how you're connected to food and grocery? Okay, yeah, so I'm Tom Richardson. I, um, I'm self-employed, actually, and but I work for a number of food businesses mainly in in the yorkshire northern area um and i uh with a with a view really to take taking products through to market so my my background before that was in mainly in food retailing so in uh, in the uk and also had a few years over in australia primarily in the fresh foods meats dairy product fresh uh, fresh produce and now i work for those kind of businesses but trying to sell their products and develop businesses um, into into retail, but also online, export, um, and wholesale and food service. So I, I spread myself across um, primarily meat, a meat business, an egg cooperative, and I, I've done work for various other businesses in frozen foods, game meats. Um, so yeah, a jack of all trades, master of none is <laughs> is the short way of saying it, really. Can you just tell us a little bit about what lockdown, what COVID has been like for your businesses, but also for the businesses that you've been working with? So anything that sort of surprised you over the past 12 months? Um, yeah, I guess when it when it first 
hit last March because it was a t- obviously a total unknown for everybody. And um, I guess uh, we were looking at the doom and gloom and <laughs> I guess everything that could, could go wrong rather than what could go right. Uh, one of the main businesses I work for is uh, called Warrendale Wagyu and it's um, it's a pretty small but growing business, which is in the premium beef sector. Um, and we, we were heavily focused in food service, uh, but also spread across retail. So we we actually relaunched our website pretty much around the same time as COVID hit. And I guess what surprised me is just the, you know, how strong that has been and how we've been able to grow and grow that and build up a really loyal customer base. I guess the, the test will be when when things get back to normal, how how we can sustain that. And and also then service the, the restaurants and the food service as well. So that that's been really strong, I guess. On the egg side of things, which is a more commodity, we've we've seen business as food services shut down, the volume's gone into retail, and then it's switched back again. So I guess egg egg demand has been strong as people have been home baking and things, particularly through lockdown one, um, when it was a novelty and exciting. Um, so the the overall egg market has seen some really really um, good strong results over the last year, but the volume has switched from one sector to another, and retail has, has obviously been very very strong over the last over the last year as it's as it's hoovered at the volume lost in food service. Um, so I guess I've in summary I've seen quite a lot of positives. Obviously that you know we we deal a lot into food service, and those businesses are really been hit hard and um you know they're open they're shut they've they've had to try and guess um what volumes they want when they want it and then been shut down overnight so i really feel for those guys and they're eager to get going but you know the 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 entrepreneurial ones have actually created businesses and you know now if i want to eat a you know a michelin star chef food i'm based in yorkshire from london i can order that and experience that in my my own home so they've kind of built an industry for the future through adversity so i guess you know trying to see a positive in food service hopefully they 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 get the benefits of that as well as their restaurants open in in the future so yeah i guess those are the main things really yeah and as you say i think all eyes are now on what's happening with consumer behavior once those restrictions start lifting i think particularly around e-commerce and that online boom that, that we've seen so um i think it'll be fascinating to watch as you know the pick list is all about sort of sharing interesting articles and interesting food and drink finds so we do want to ask you a little bit about your reading habits as well tell us a bit about the publications that you tend to read on a regular basis how do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry I guess specifically to the sectors I'm in, it's industry journals like um, Farmers Guardian, Farmers Weekly and things, weekly publications um, the grocer in terms of the, the food end of it. So I try and span from, from I guess, the roots or the, the farmer base right through to the retail. So I get an overall view. When I'm, when I'm feeling I've got a bit of time on my hand and I want some in-depth stuff, I might pick up The Economist and <laughs> be, be um, you know, uh, just, to, I guess, try and challenge myself and push myself. And then it's... You know, it's usually the Sunday papers like the Times and, and things like that, just to get a broader spectrum. So I've got three kids under three years old, so I don't get a huge amount of reading time. I, I read a lot of um, Julia Donaldson <laughs> storybooks on an evening and things like that. And then I, when I do get time for myself, it, it's kind of those industry industry um, journals and, and mainly online now, I guess. I subscribe online and do it that way. 
Brilliant. Now tell us about your first article for us. Yeah, so the first article I picked was actually from the grocer and a bit, um, I guess, relevant to what I was saying before. It's about the, the three key trends that will influence um, grocery shopping habits in 2021. Um, and I guess anyone who's in the industry, there won't be any surprises as to what those trends trends are. So um, it's trying to guess which will stay, which will go, and you know what, what's what it's going to be like in, in, in a year or so's time. So the, the three the three key trends are really um, consumers shifting to value as as you know, there's talk about recession and people trying to save pennies. But I guess it's that context of what is value because you know you can buy a very expensive product but it can, can still be great value but uh, you know the the article alludes to you know promotional volumes being up and people pick it picking out the value the value-based retailers more so than the premium ones so um that's that's a trend that we'd you know we'd probably expect as, as it's going to be a tough year um, going forward and then the, the other the second piece was around um the home body economy, they call it. So home cooking, scratch cooking. I, I think, you know, another positive out of lockdown is that people have probably been sat at home twiddling their thumbs trying to entertain kids that so have actually had to go back to scratch cooking. So as a nation, years ago, we were, you know, as the Brits, we were accused of being, you know, ready meal junkies and not understanding food compared to our European counterparts and things. But I think lockdown has been great to get people back in the kitchen cooking and and hopefully there's you know health benefits and and just that food knowledge coming out coming coming back to our, our society so trying to pull a positive out there and then the, the third one again is digital so obviously through lockdown i think Ocado announced their results this morning up 35 percent um and you know, we're in my business, we're trying to order cardboard, but we can't because Amazon is swallowing it up. So <laughs> you can see that, that shift to digital and online online shopping up it's really hard to get slots and things and i think some really inter interesting um stats is that you know the the amount the number of um the older demographics now shopping online has really shifted um and i think 14 percent now of shopping is now grocery shopping is now done online so i guess when we get out of lock or the, the full lockdowns this you know, there's going to be a bit of embedded fear in people going into shops, I think. And if people can continue to do online shopping, we we do it as a household because it saves me time and it comes to our door and I frankly don't have time to go to supermarkets anymore with, with the kids. So, uh, you know, this trend is obviously set to stay. I guess the, you know, the challenge is like the car day again at 35%, but they're still delivering a loss. So it's how retailers can make it sustainable for them in terms of getting that food to the home profitably. Um, so yeah, that's a, a synopsis of it. So really, three really interesting um, trends potentially for into twenty twenty one and how they're going to change change shopping ongoing. It was a great article, and it, it always makes me think. You know, people talk about the stickiness of these trends, don't they? As you've alluded to, you know, how much of this are you going to stay with? And I really like that language around embedded fear, and you know how much that that'll stay for in store. But the the first point I was interested about, particularly, and you've touched on it around value, and that talking about value, not necessarily price. Do you think the the value equation has evolved because, as you've just said there, you know, we. It, it's higher value to us if we can get it delivered to our door, you know, even if that means a, maybe a smaller range. Do you think consumers value equation 
maybe will have evolved from what they've been used to because they won't want to shop around as much anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I kind of it's the quality is it's price, value, and service. And I guess with online, if if you can deliver all three of those, it's you know it's it's a winner going forward. I guess the the, the challenge, you know, could be perceived around the value and. Um, and and getting and then also quality in terms of not being happy with what you get or you know replacements and things like that that they haven't totally nailed that so it's you know how how, re, how grocery retail has changed over the last few years has changed massively because we talked about value years ago when i was a buyer and it was pretty much around price but now um you know customers customers do sort of take on those those, those th- three different um points and I guess you know the the great example of the the discounters where they've really kind of taken all all three of those. They've they've nailed the price. They're now nailing the quality in terms of taking on the premium retailers. You know maybe the service element they're not quite quite there yet, particularly on delivering online and also the in store experience. So um, quite quite an interesting one there for me. What's your first pick this week, Julia? My first pick is from The Guardian, and it's an article titled UK Importers Brace for Disaster as New Brexit Customs Checks Loom. Uh, Nice and upbeat, um, as, as you can imagine from that headline. This is really about the new controls on imports from the European Union into the UK that will be coming into force in April and July. Um, So if you remember, the UK government decided that we would have a bit of a grace period for the first few months of 2021. But starting in April, there will be new checks on imports coming in. We've talked about this uh, in various previous episodes of the podcast. Laura, you've shared some of the concerns you've been hearing from the meat sector around this. But the reason I picked this particular article this week is because I feel like we seem to be reaching a tipping point of some sort in terms of this is now an issue that is getting more and more mainstream coverage. In the early days of Brexit or the early days of, of the trade deal, it was still largely about the impact on exports. And of course, we still continue to hear about that as well. But it feels like we're seeing much more coverage now around this issue affecting imports, particularly as this grace period is coming to an end. From a food and drink perspective, the big immediate concern is new controls on animal and plant products, which will be coming in on the 1st of April. So consignments coming into the UK will need to have the correct import certificates and also where appropriate health certificates signed by vets. This is a big concern for the meat industry. Nick Allen, the CEO of the British Meat Processors Association, is one of the people quoted in the article. And he, I thought, summed up really well just this concern about potential delays at the border. If you have a consignment coming in, it doesn't have the right documentation, it doesn't have the right paperwork, it's not going to be able to travel on to its destination. And when you have just-in-time supply chains, and particularly when you have a product like meat, before you know it, um, you have a real knock-on effect on product availability, on shelf life, on what you can do with that product. There just isn't a lot of give in the system if, if your lorries get stuck, even just for, you know, 24 hours or a relatively short period of time. They also, uh, for this article, talk to uh, La Formagerie, which is a specialist cheese retailer in London, They are particularly concerned about import taxes and duties on the cheeses 
they source from France and Italy primarily. And the owner is quoted in there saying that she could see a situation where prices will have to go up by 10% or even 15% in April as a result of these new uh, checks and duties coming in. More generally, there are also concerns about whether British customs will be able to cope with the new requirements. Will there be enough staff? We've also heard at various points about concerns around Will there be enough vets to, uh, to, to sign all these health certificates? Um, and exactly how are these new checks going to be carried out? So even if ultimately this is something that is going to get sorted in the long term, and hopefully in the, uh, in the short and medium term as well, that sort of, it's almost another cliff edge coming in April as some of these new checks um, are coming in. And certainly a lot of concern within the food industry about how easy it's going to be to manage some of these new checks and, and what the potential knock-on effects are going to be on the supply chain. And Tom, I was really interested in your perspective on this, partly because you're obviously very close to the meat industry as well, so you, you're aware of, of some of these discussions. But um, have you seen anything in terms of your own businesses? Is, is this a concern? Are you sourcing any inputs from the EU that you think could potentially be caught up in, in some of this? Or what's the general mood music you're picking up on from, from the industry? Um, I mean, from a personal point of view, it would we're not that impacted because um, I mean, pre-COVID we were exporting a bit of beef into Europe, but because of our, dom- our domestic demand, we've kind of stopped that just because of the complications that, that were there. Um, on, a, on a bigger scale, things I'm hearing is that there's, there's obviously been challenges exporting things, particularly in the pig sector. Um, and I think, your point or the points made in the article are valid that you know it'll take some there'll be surely a lot of teething problems getting this up and running in terms of the the paperwork procedures the the you know the the ports of the points of entry the staffing levels just just the the day-to-day getting it done hopefully once people got used to that it'll it'll hopefully uh, run smoothly you you then add covid into that as well that it's another complication in terms of um, you know, testing and pe- you know people ensuring that they're, they're COVID safe by doing all this. It's not going to make this easy at all. Um, I guess the only positive is that it's April and then July, I think, for the full implementation. So it's hopefully when COVID is less prevalent. Um, but yeah, what I'm picking up is concern around the industry, particularly after what's been experienced on, on, on the export side side of things. And you're exactly right. When when we're dealing with fresh meat, fresh produce, particularly in the European seasons on fresh produce coming in, you're dealing with day, you know, a few day shelf life. So if, if things get held up for one, two days, it's it's it could be catastrophic in terms of that onward supply chain. Um, and hopefully we won't see that um, escalate into into impact on, on food availability on, on the shelves. It's great to hear your insight and it also makes me think about um, Donal Denver from Board Beer that spoke to us a couple of weeks ago and the amount of training that Board Beer have invested in for industry, everything from lorry drivers right back through the supply chain to make sure everyone knows what they're doing with various bits of paper to make it as seamless as possible. But I'm sure you'll be the same that particularly where there's lorries of composite loads where different customers, different paperwork, 
arguably different for meat, different vet signatures, then it just makes that complexity even huge, even bigger rather, and, and, and particularly huge and, and a challenging one. And I think it's interesting to see Nick Allen's comment, and I know some of the, the bigger processes have, have thrown enormous resource at this to make sure that they've got the training in place and they know exactly uh, what to do and when and how to deal with it because exports absolutely fundamental to some of our sectors isn't it and yeah, imports arguably we're not sufficient on self-sufficient on food and meat in particular <laughs> exactly and you know they, there's no doubt the process and the, the big guys are putting the resource behind it but they can get everything exactly right, but then it's kind of out of their control once once it hits the, the port of entry. And you'll, you know, again, if they have a COVID outbreak or, or staffing issues, it, it could have huge knock-on effects. So, but I'm sure in time it will be right. But it's um, it's obviously going to present challenges through the spring and summer this year. Yeah, Laura, what's your first pick for us? Uh, my first pick this week is from The Independent, and it's got the headline, Tesco calls for Amazon and online rivals to be hit by 1% sales tax. And it's had quite a bit of coverage over the last couple of days, this story, so I've been uh, really interested by it. So bosses of the 18, of 18 supermarkets, high street chains and retail property owners are calling on Chancellor Rishi Sunak to overhaul current tax system to put them on a level playing field. And this is um, off the back of figures that Amazon's UK sales have rocketed by 51% in 2020. Uh, to, to just short of uh, it's a rounding here, but let's take it twenty billion uh, pounds in the in the UK alone. So the 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 bricks and mortar retailers are starting to feel it. So Tesco in particular have called for a one percent sales tax to be levied on Amazon and other digital uh, retail giants as coronavirus pandemic continues to hit high street jobs. And there's this concern that. Um, as high streets remain closed, the challenge of, you know, how will they ever get back up and running? Um, and they've also demanded a, a permanent reduction in business rates, um, which retail, leisure and hospitality firms have not paid for the financial year after the government launched its tax holiday. But the problem is um, property tax is set to resume in April at the beginning of the next financial year, despite non-essential retailers remaining shut. So they're going to have to start paying for, for some of this when they're not going to be able to necessarily make a, a revenue. Um, several essential retailers, including UK's six biggest supermarkets, have handed their rates relief worth over two billion back to the state. And this was something that we chatted about last season in the pick list, wasn't it? About when there was all that PR about who was handing the cash back and who wasn't. So I, I guess this is around the retailers feel, the, in particular, that the, the supermarkets feel that they've done the right thing at the time, but they want to make sure that things have been fairly uh, measured with the online players. And a quote from a Tesco spoke person in the article says we uh, believe strongly there should be a level playing field for all retailers online or physical which is why we propose a one percent online sales levy for businesses with annual revenues of over one million in addition to a 20 percent reduction in business rates um, there's also been a bit of chat over the uh, sunday press the times in particular talking about a, a potential one-off windfall tax which uh, rishi sunak could bring in as well to to tackle some of these uh, businesses that have naturally boomed in the uh, pandemic because they've got, got such a good online offering. What do you make of all this time? It's really hard to, to balance this, isn't it? And there's, it's all, I always think there's always a challenge with, with Amazon because of that huge big giant and that they do it well that, you know, we, we pick off the big guy and, you know, but 
but the, the supermarkets is interesting. You see the likes of Roger Burnley and, and David Potts putting the name to this to say, come on, we, we need to get the, the level playing field sorted. Do you think they'll, they'll get a win? Do you think the online players need to be challenged a bit more? Yeah, like I, th- I think it's, you know, that level play, play, playing field is a really sort of fair term in that, you know, rates rates on property and things is fairly you know the properties it's the only constant so they they tax that and it's fairly yeah it looks unfair when you look at it versus the likes of amazon and people so i think there is definitely need for a review of how how these online giants are are taxed fairly versus um the i guess the bricks and mortar retailers and again the, the pandemic's just fast forwarded as probably five years in terms of the high street where where it was heading anyway but it, it's just exacerbated it so i think it, it certainly needs a review um you know amazon as a big guy gets a fair bit of grief i guess we've got to think that actually they're buying off a lot of suppliers and producers and even small small producers selling through them so we've got to bear in mind that they do obviously support a lot of other businesses within within the economy um but i i think it's only fair as the high street is in is in a, f- a fair mess in some respects that it, it needs to be fair in terms of the the rates and the taxation that they can then compete for um fairly i certainly think this idea of a level playing field as you say i think it's um it's is absolutely critical it's an interesting challenge for the supermarkets in the current climate though isn't it and and i wonder to what extent what has happened with covid has made this argument a little bit more complicated as well because of course I know there are, you know, as people rightly point out, just because supermarket sales have boomed doesn't necessarily mean they've made huge profits. And there's been massive investment um, as well. But of course, supermarkets have been one of the few uh, businesses that have been able to consistently operate throughout the crisis while other retailers had to shut, close their doors. And I, I just think that is potentially quite a challenging situation for them to then mount this argument and talk about um, a, a level playing field when if you're a clothing retailer, you may as well say, well, your clothing concession is still been open. You've still, you know, to a large extent been able to um, to, to to have your sales and take advantage of that footfall that's been diverted from elsewhere in the high street. So, yeah, I think I'll be watching with great interest to see whether um, just how much goodwill there is towards supermarket in particular when it comes to these kinds of arguments. Yeah, and also, they, you know, there's, there's a... There's a um view of or Rishi Sunak looking at a, a windfall tax, which which is great as a one-off income, but it, it, it doesn't kind of solve the issue that everybody's talking about long term. It's it's a a quick uh, income for the Treasury now based on what they've seen in the pandemic, but I think it needs a a longer term view as well. Um, and just I guess just allow the high street to compete fairly and you know, they, there's also an element for that the high street has to differentiate itself and think how it is going to compete because at the end of the day, a lot of consumers want experience, they want contact, they want to go, you know, it's, it's a day out. So there's still, when we're talking about the broader high street, not just food and food and grocery, that there's still a role to play for some of these retailers who, are, and, and there's a few of them still doing quite well. So they've got to think really how they, how they leverage a point of difference um, whether it's through experience or service or whatever it may be, um, to where Amazon can't compete because they they are doing what they do. 
so I think there's a there's a there's a there's a wider challenge as well. Um, but yeah, it, it does. It certainly needs a review in my in my eyes. Tom, tell us about your second pick for us. <laughs> okay, so my my second pick um, it's, it's in the Farmers Weekly um, guy Ed Henderson, and it's it was also in the Farmers Guardian and various other um, journals I saw about um, AHDB sponsoring a I guess a, a trial and project of using DNA samples to ensure cattle traceability. So I picked this because it's fairly pertinent to what I do. And I guess a, a quite an important um, point in, in, in an industry which has had its scandals in the past. Um, I think this, this article really talks about how collecting, um, I guess, DNA swabs in the abattoir will then allow the, um, the food chain to trace back when it goes into further pro processed products or into ready meals and things to ensure that what's being claimed can actually be scientifically proven um, based on that that DNA within that within that product. So I think it's um, it's a really important one for consumer consumer confidence. And um, it also will, will make the UK and British food chain even more sort of secure and hopefully take it take us forward as a you know in terms of hitting those high quality um, markets and credentials that it's a really important um, part of that so um yeah this 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 work ongoing with ahdb um they funded the project and they're working uh, with the association of independent meat suppliers and the british meat process association and a few and identigen to do this so it's quite you know some big hitters getting involved in this and as I said, yeah, they collect the samples at the point of slaughter and then um, associate that with the animal's ear tag and other element data. And then that's that's a reference database to then be able to trace the meat, meat back to as it goes. And this is predominantly around further processed products because I think the traceability around, I guess, prime cuts into retail is is fairly um, logical and, and I guess easy to do. This is when products sort of end up way down the supply chain in, in various different formats. So um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting one. It's something as a beef business where we we started doing a couple of years ago in terms of protecting ourselves as a premium brand within that to ensure that we could you know have that DNA reference database to then trace trace back to. I was, unsurprisingly, I was really interested by this story. <laughs> um, and I guess, as we know, a, a, a lot of the places, I'm really interested to hear you guys are doing it as well, have been doing DNA and DNA traceback for, for quite a long time. And I think getting the Association of Independent Meat Supplies, which I, I know they've lobbied harder for this project, is great because it get, helps the, the smaller SMEs that maybe haven't had access to this sort of technology before involved. And I think as you're totally right in terms of further process product. And I think the other area it'll really help access is food service, whereas, you know, they've got mm. dedicated supply chains into niche restaurants and some of these chains are getting bigger and bigger and then they can have that trace back and that, that better communication right through to the end consumer. So I, th I think it's a, it's a really exciting step forward. And I know... Um, in the UK, we always talk about, oh, it'd be great to have a meat standards, Australia type quality standard for, for meat. And we've never quite got there for a, a myriad of reasons, but I'm really pleased to see this is coming on stream where some of the international players do this as standard. So it's good to see. 
what do you think Julia is a, I, I don't want to call you a non-meat person because <laughs> you, 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 so someone that wrote about, I don't know how many articles about horse gate, you, you probably know a lot more about meat than I do, but uh, what, what's your, give me, give us an objective view rather than me just sat here looking at rose tinted spectacles. Will consumers think we're doing this already? I, I, I don't know. I don't think you've got particularly rose-tinted spectacles on this. I think this sounds like a, a really worthwhile and an, an important initiative. I think the thing that I'm perhaps not yet fully clear on or that I'll be watching with, with real interest is exactly how that connecting up with the consumer is, is going to work, to what extent this is going to be something that actually has a consumer-facing element. How do you communicate that? Um I completely get its its value, and I think it, it clearly has a, a value even just on a B two B level. You know, uh, uh, being able to to provide that kind of assurance. But when these sort of big projects are, are being worked on, obviously everyone's sort of thinking about how do you justify a premium for British um, potentially? Um, how do you really make sure that consumers understand the difference uh, when they're buying into into UK produced meat? Um, so I, I have no sense from from the description here of exactly how that's going to be brought to life. Um, so that to me is, is is the big question. I'll be really interested to see what they've got planned for this. I don't know whether you've heard either of you has has heard anything about what they what they have planned in this regard. I would have thought it will be down to the those individual supply chains to promote it themselves. And I guess you, you think of best in class that have done this is M and S, isn't it? They had such a big campaign couple of years ago using not dissimilar technology about you know knowing where your beef comes from so I you can very easily benchmark about you know what what they did in these smaller supply chains look look against those really yeah I think initially it's it's kind of a a a process to ensure your supply chain is absolutely secure and you know is what you're saying it is and then from there who knows where it'll develop with the technology that you know um I know we we as a business with the the Wagyu are looking. Uh, we we're using the, the the DNA data in terms of genetic progress and then select you know measuring quality, a bit like Laura said with the MSA system. So measuring meat quality and using DNA um, data data to do that. And um, so we've got continuous improvement in quality. But no doubt there'll hopefully be some technology that allows you to really i think the, the japanese do this with their wagyu that you can actually give that piece of meat is from this animal from this farm and go down to that level of detail but that's in a very premium high market if we're talking you know mass retail or anything it's going to be a, a bit more challenging to do that but certainly um it'll I'll, I'll watch with interest as to how it does develop julia what's your second pick this week my second pick this week is from The Spoon, and it's an article titled HelloFresh co-founder launches well-seasoned, a new meat-by-mail service. So we're staying with all things meat. Um, this is a service, I should say, that's launching in the US, not the UK. But I thought it was a really interesting concept, um, and I was particularly keen to talk to Tom uh, about it, given his uh, his background in the industry as well. So Two interesting angles here. Um, one is that it's being launched by Dan Trayman, who previously worked for HelloFresh. So someone who brings extensive direct-to-consumer and recipe kit, recipe box experience. And then second, as the article points out, 
we're hearing so much about plant-based launches at the moment, including in this whole D2C and meal kit field, that it's worth noting someone who is launching something that's focused specifically on meat. Um, what interests me in particular about this concept is that Well Seasoned is trying to play I suppose a slightly different role to other people in the market. Because when you look at this at first glance, you might think, well, it's meat by mail, it's direct to consumer selling of meat. That isn't new. There are lots of meat suppliers that have been doing this for a long time. And if they weren't doing it, they certainly started doing it during lockdown. But what Well Seasoned is trying to do is, I suppose, something that sort of sits in between those classic meat boxes you can order from a meat supplier or a butcher and then a full-on recipe box service like HelloFresh. So they're sort of sitting in the middle there. Um, the key point of difference for them is that the products are prepped, they're seasoned, hence the name, they're marinated, they're ready to cook. Um, there's a wide variety of cuts on offer, certainly wider than you typically get in, in a supermarket, but it's all done with a focus on convenience and making it easy for the consumer. They also talk about the quality of the meat, the farms they're sourcing from, etc. But I'd say the main selling point is about taste, helping the consumer get the most out of the meat they're buying. There's a QR code with every portion of meat that you buy so that you get detailed cooking instructions, for example. And I quite like that concept because I find particular context of the debate we're having about eating less but better quality meat, there is a certain amount of education to be done to make sure that consumers are getting the most value out of the premium meat product that they're potentially buying into. You're perhaps needing to have your hand held a little bit more to give you the confidence that this is going to be money well spent. You're not splashing out on super expensive meat only to find that you know you don't know how to cook it properly or how to prepare it properly so it's about confidence and uh, and convenience so i think it's a really interesting concept i'll be watching it with interesting to uh, interest to see how this fares in the us not least because i suppose one challenge i could see is that this positioning that they've gone for, sort of halfway between a full-on recipe box and halfway between something that's just a straightforward um, meat delivery service, I don't know how intuitive that is. And I don't know whether in practice, that additional layer of we make it easy for you, we season it, we prepare things, we give you really great cooking instructions, whether that's just going to be enough to convince someone to stick with a service like this long term. But uh, certainly, I thought an interesting launch. Tom, what did you make of it? Yeah, I think, you know, what, what's really interesting is, like you say, the, the guy who's backing it and that he's, you know, ex Hello Fresh, so he's, he's obviously seen something in this. And, um, I guess, I guess for me, the fact that it's frozen as well is fairly different in that, um, you know, it's, it's all been about fresh, but actually frozen is is equally as good and, and inconvenient, I guess, to some to some um, degree. And I think if people are seeing meat as the, I guess, the centre of plate and then adding a flavour that it's kind of meat plus in that it's it's gone so much they just have to then add their preferred side so maybe seeing that some of the the four recipe kits or full meal solutions are too prescriptive and don't give people enough degree of adding their own 
side or doing what they like. So it's kind of a halfway house, which, you know, he, he might be on something, I think, in that you're adding a flavour, you're making a decision at that point that you're going to have, I don't know, a, a teriyaki pork chop. So you get that out and then instinctively you're going to cook noodles or rice or whatever you prefer. So you're not being absolutely told what you have to eat. You still have a, a degree of influence to it. That's that's where where I see the positive um, the positivity with it, yeah. So, I I also will be watching it very closely and see how it develops in the US. I thought it looked great, and it's a shame we can't order any. We'll need to tap up some US <laughs> connections to get some ordered and get some photos taken. I think, and it, it made me think as well of, um, particularly when you describe it, Julie. When you think of those sort of products, they they're the sort of products you find in a really good independent butcher shop that are well seasoned there and that's a good butcher's counter isn't it when you go in and it makes you feel hungry and you think yeah and I'll be able to cook with that and it's something maybe some of the bigger retailers have struggled with in terms of this value-added area of uh, I guess I don't know economies of scale and to be able to do different niche runs it just maybe doesn't work so I I think the there is uh, definitely a place for it and I was really interested today it was just as um, you'd sent those articles that over and I was having a read of them uh, I also as I do have a look on Instagram and on David Beckham's uh, live uh, he, there he was having a, a nice photo shoot with a box of meat that he just had delivered in Miami and you think meat is still cool and meat still has a place and we do hear so much about meat free and that you know arguably sometimes and Judy you do this a lot better than I saying it has a better branding on occasion and tells a better story in the meat sector can do more but there is definitely places we can talk more about me and major influencers are still eating it. So, uh, yeah, interesting. And another one I've noticed online actually in the last week is Roast in a Box, UK-based, and a lot of uh, sort of C-level uh, celebs that I follow on Instagram, this is how sad my life is, uh, <laughs> getting a roast in a box on a weekend. Very much as you've described, Julia, it's all their season that allows them to feel that they're, they're actually cooking something, not just doing a meal kit. So there's... So something in the component piece, isn't there? Yeah, totally. I also, it made me wonder, just as you were talking there about um, things like roast in a box, is, you know, you do wonder whether there's a the potential here to kind of address some of the issues around carcass balance as well, because I think some of what they, they're trying to do with Well Seasoned is also introduce um, consumers and give them the confidence to to prepare cuts that are perhaps a little bit more unusual. Now, I think they're going for the kind of, this is restaurant quality kind of, you know, cut um, cut of meat but there is obviously potential there to say hey this is something you wouldn't normally pick up you maybe don't know how to prepare it but we've done all the hard work for you and now you get something and, and it's really tasty and it's really not particularly difficult to prepare either I'll let Tom talk about the joy of carcass balance because he'll have have dealt with that headache on a commercial level day in day out I would have thought of your career Whereas I'm yeah. more from an academic position that yeah, it's a pain. <laughs> it is, yeah. And I think, you know, I think these these kind of things are perfect to do that because, you know, that enables them maybe to buy buy cuts at a, a better a better rate versus the more well known ones and, and put it in a format that a consumer know, can can then they know what to do with them. Because you there's so you know there's so many different cuts and things that people just don't understand because they don't have the expertise and um, knowledge, whereas these online businesses can really place that for them and make it easy. And there's some commercial advantage there for, for, for buying those cuts as well. So, yeah, re- really interesting. I, I think, you know, 
with the January of the January just just gone, you know, we in the meat industry we all kind of get a bit down when January comes. It's a bit, but this January has been been different. I think that's good, and we shouldn't hide away from the fact that you know people may well eat less meat, but if they're going to eat meat, they want to they want it to be great quality, welfare, all that kind of stuff. So we as an industry, and I think Laura, we talked about it, we've got to be collectively talking better and marketing ourselves better um, because we're up against some pretty well-backed and good marketeers in, in the in the meat alternatives market. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be slating each other. We should be selling the virtues of meat and why it's you know really important to eat it and part of a healthy, healthy and balanced uh, diet. Laura, tell us about your second pick. It's still meat-related, so I don't want to let anyone down here. So my second pick this week um, is being covered, again, quite extensively across trade press, but uh, the title I picked it up was the new title to the pick list, the pig site, uh, with the headline, Waitrose launches app that tracks emotional well-being of its animals. Uh, and this is a new app which has been developed by the um, SRUC, the Scottish Rural College, and licensed to Waitrose. And it's uh, on trial for two years with them, uh, allowing uh, animal welfare inspectors to record different expressive qualities of behaviour of animals, including uh, how relaxed they are, how tense, playful or anxious. Um, and these behaviours are indicative of animals' emotional body language, uh, possible signs of well-being, said Waitrose, and the app would help manage and improve opportunities animals have to experience a good and enriching life uh, a process a retailer helped it would lead further improvements to animal welfare across the UK it's interesting um, Waitrose have launched a, a new 10-year agricultural strategy which this is forming part of um, and other ambitions it includes um, not only animals uh, good and enriching lives but also paying farmers fairly and ensuring all raw materials are res uh, responsibly sourced and I guess um, the thing that I was particularly interested in the article, and there was a quote here from um, Waitrose uh, Exec Director James Bailey, who says that the, there's a huge development for the industry, or this, sorry, this is a huge development for the industry. This is the first time any retailer has, retailer have explored uh, welfare measures based on the concept of animals' freedoms and express positive emotions. And I'd seen James speak last month at the Oxford Farming Conference, um, obviously online, uh, and he was talking about how Waitrose were really seeing a role for um, tr uh, transparency in the supply chain and real disruptive transparency. And you think automatically there is a huge transparency in, in UK uh, meat supply chains, but I guess the likes of Waitrose want to push the envelope even further. And, you know, as soon as everyone else differentiates and you know, a discounter differentiates, then waitrobes need to go one step further all the time. And I guess this gives them a lever to do that and to see how this plays into their portfolio of different options. What do you think, Tom, about something like this? Because it could be something that, that works really well and it's, you know, you've got a probably an inspector on farm that's just typing into the app. So it'll allow them to, to gather data. But obviously waitrobes have already got significant standards beyond the industry norm is, is this something and i guess back to julia's earlier point will this be something that consumers will see pulled through or will this be a, a b2b initiative for now well i, I guess from a, a top level point of view that, that you know they're doing this you know it's good to see waitress doing this because they have they have always led the market in terms of welfare having worked for them a, a number of years ago so it's good to see that they're moving moving on even further. And I, I think 
from a consumer point of view, there's if if you've got happy animals and uh, you know they're fulfilled and everything, then it it shows up in the quality at the end point. So there there should be a commercial advantage further down the chain um, by doing this. And I think it's it's really important. Again, as we as we you know I mentioned uh, the January and the pressure that the industry's under it's it's even more important to be doing things like this because animals are sentient beings we've got to fully respect them make their you know make sure that the lives they have are fulfilled and we treat them with respect etc etc and measure that and can prove it and i think laura you mentioned that this kind of disruptive transparency you know i think a company like waitress should be absolutely proud and be showing off and i've kind of seen it a bit more in their advertising um recently and and you know be absolutely blatant about what they do and don't hide from the fact that they are animals because you know consumers with Instagram and all that kind of stuff they, they know they see and they I think they're hungry to know more and want to know about what happens behind closed doors and you see it with foods like uh, programs like Food and Wraps and things that people have an inherent interest in in the food supply chain and want to want to know things so I think waitresses have a great opportunity to I guess further their point of difference and. And they've got the consumers who who are passionate about it as well. So I think I think it's a really good move, um, and hopefully it's another another way of of protecting the the meat the meat industry. Tom, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much. It's been it's been great to to be here on this snowy, freezing evening in Yorkshire. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.